Hey guys, Jack here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Some exciting stuff in the works. This March, Software Y is doing a heads-up challenge uh, the second week of March. More details on that to come. Uh, and also, uh, don't forget to attend the last Cash Game Academy uh, before, I think, at least the World Series of Poker. Uh, that's March 19th through the 21st. Uh, that's in Las Vegas for information on that. Uh, and all things SoftwareY, head to SoftwareYAcademy.com. A reminder that we are brought to you by SoftwareY. SoftwareY is poker coaching unlike any other. Learn from high-stakes pros Matt Berkey, Christian Soto, Jordan Young, and now Zach and myself at the only poker training camp that teaches live poker strategy. All right, guys. Thanks so much, and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, Zach. Hey, Jack. So, man, I think this is the last, the last time we're going to record while you're in Jordan, uh, at least... In the foreseeable future, inshallah that changes. But you know, it looks <laughs> looking like, looking like that's going to be the case a little bit. <laughs> Dude, I'm glad this is. Uh, I can't wake up this early to do podcasts, and it'll I can. Be, yeah, so it'll be better with me with me being behind you versus yeah. the early morning person being seven hours, eight hours ahead of you. So maybe the first time we've announced this on the pod, but Zach is headed out to the West Coast. You can find him in the Bay Area starting, I think, next week. But yeah, we'll put and Las Vegas. In the show notes. <laughs> Soon after arriving in uh, Berkeley, California, I'll be heading to Las Vegas with Jack to participate in the Heads Up Challenge through Solve for Why, and you know, hopefully get to play against Jack and represent Just Hands later on in the bracket. So you can follow the action uh, in the link in the show notes. Yeah, we can all dream. So, man, I was actually just in Vegas doing the Software Academy. And I maybe shouldn't have, but I played a little bit of poker, you know, even after these sort of nine-hour intensive poker study days at the Academy. Why do you say you shouldn't have? Oh, no, I mean, I, I think it might have been good for me to get some rest, but, you know, I was... Staying on the strip, and I went for it. Man, you only live once. You gotta gotta go for it. Go big. So I actually did, uh, and I think this is actually a, something that I'll share with everyone. Like when you're, my philosophy about like game selection and bankroll management is, if I'm feeling like, like you have your sort of top stake that you'll play. For me, that's 510 just because I normally expect 510 to go 510 20. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of have to be prepared for that. And so, 510, you know, expecting 510 20 is the max that I'll play, at least on any regular occasion. And so, if I'm going to choose that stake, I'm going to be sort of at, at peak or at least close to it, feeling like I can play my A game. Uh, after a long day at Software Y, I wasn't necessarily feeling peak. And so, I decided to pop over to Caesars for what I thought would be some pretty chill 2-5. And little was, did he know. No, little did he know it would be <laughs> very chill. Uh, no, it was, it was super fun. Really tight game. Just people just basically begging me to play like 50% of hands and just barrel them, which I did. <laughs> yeah, I heard, uh, heard you obliged. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm always happy to oblige, especially if it means I get to play more hands and bluff more. Fifty uh, percent is probably an overstatement, but yeah, I think I was probably playing at least 
40%, and I definitely stood out from the table. Why do you say that? Because everyone else was playing tight as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because they were considerate, Jack, and played poker the way it meant, was meant to be played. <laughs> I think some of them had that feeling. No, it was hilarious. Because, like, <laughs> I had this uh, very nice older woman on my right who... Uh, Man, I don't know what it would have taken for her to get to a showdown, but there were two two five games, and then one of the games uh, broke, and a couple of players came over to our table, and this guy sits down, young guy with like more than the max buy-in, and she like leans over to me, and she's like, "He's a really tough player." I'm like, "Oh wow, okay," and he was, <laughs> he turned out to just be like just an epic nit. <laughs> Yeah, dude, uh, that that happens all the time in rooms where you have these knit regs that will go on like big runs, you know, two to eight percent of the time because they just grind like twelve hours at a time, and then people just subconsciously remember the times, maybe consciously as well, when these knits just had like uber stacks, and then just have these images, and I feel like for both of us that's been kind of like a big turning point in starting to feel more confident at five ten and you know, do better in those games, just realizing that most people are just so much nittier than they really should be in spots. And when you're comfortable firing the clips, you know, there's a whole world of possibility out there. But I'll just give that as a teaser. You have to attend the Academy to get the full version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I stacked him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I just had a lot of fun because... Yeah, I'm just not used to that much fold equity. There's a lot to be had. So let's let's get into one, I think, really fun, interesting hand that I played, where I, I think I read my opponent very well, but still was a little unsure about what to do. So I opened from early position with actually a very good hand, ace-king. And I get called by someone in later position, I think either the hijack or the cutoff, who's a newer player to the table. He came probably around 11.30 p.m. And he's definitely like a reg, probably a pro, younger guy. Knows, the dealers know his name. So I, we have, he and I haven't been playing that for, a lot, for that long, probably about 30 minutes. So I think he thinks I'm pretty loose, but you might not have seen everything I've done, like stacking the net with... <laughs> Three dudes suited, which is awesome. <laughs> nice man. Anyway, so but he, I've seen him. He's like a not like super active three bet or anything, but he used three bet a couple of times, probably with value. And I think the main adjustment people make in this game to wider opening is they three bet a little bit wider for value. I don't get the sense I had been three bet light at all in the session. Yeah. Um, those are start like three betting eights or nines regularly when they ordinarily wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, or, or at least definitely like jacks or tens when they may have just flatted. <laughs> you know. Yeah, even better. But uh, it's it's a little relevant to this hand, which is the reason I include that in my thinking. And I, I was discounting tens. Mm-hmm. So we actually go heads up to the flop. He had about six hundred to start the hand. Um, I had him covered. There was. A limper. I raised a 30. He called. And so we go to the flop with like 60-something. Yeah, like 65 after rake. 
we see a flop of 10 three deuce, 10 deuce of spades, three of clubs. I have red ace king. I'm basically C betting 100 in these games. I think that's the way to go. So I C bet to 45. Yeah, so I, I think this is pretty standard. It's just really a question of sizing. I think against a player like this, we can expect them to, based off what they've observed and you know being in position, I think we should expect them to call with most of their better Broadways, right? Oh, no? Okay. Better Broadway? Well, I don't know that they have that many better Broadways. Like, I wouldn't expect this person to float me with... Uh, Ace-Queen? Ace-Queen, King-Queen. I, I think people just fold. With with backdoor equity, I could see it. Okay, so give, given that, then I guess what you're saying is this is a profitable seabed to set up a likely double or triple barrel, just because even with like the one pair of hands they're calling on the flop, they're just not calling down three streets. Because this really feels like a hand against this player type, where if they call the seabed on the flop, which if they're folding all the overs, you're definitely printing here on the flop C bet alone. But if, if they're if they're gonna be calling one pair of hands, the general plan is firing the clip and just and just hoping they fold the majority of their worst one pair of hands. Feel this feels more of like a single or triple spot based on the board texture to me. Yeah, so I'm probably uh, I like that. Right now I'm thinking single barrel and just continue on like a Broadway card. Uh, I think that's part of what's really yeah. nice about these games is that People are so tight in folding so many uh, Broadway hands in these spots that like those just become my cards, you know. And <laughs> yeah, so any obviously Ace King, I'm just gonna trip for value and Queen or Jack, I will at least double barrel and maybe give up on the river. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, I I definitely agree with that that you should probably limit yourself against a player like this to only continuing on the Broadway cards. But I would also say if you do continue on those Broadway cards, you're probably, you probably should be triple bailing more often than not based on this player type. Maybe. But I assume they called. No, he raised. So I bet 45 and he raised to 150. So did we rip it? What happened? (laughs) So, so I thought about ripping it. My read on the field, the field of pros here, is that they're not raising top pair hands very often. And so I would be a little bit surprised to see this player with a hand like Ace-10. I think people are just... It's just not in their strategy. And they're just like... They would just hate to do that and lose to the win over pair. But isn't in some of those types of players, it's also the strategy to, like, raise now so they lose less against an overpair? And, like, they would also maybe do this with, you know, second pair hands? I think a worse player at these stakes, like an older not a pro older yeah, player, yeah. I would expect to maybe have a top pair raising range here. But mm-hmm. the 2-5 pro, I'm expecting to not raise, you know most 10x here and so i actually i expect this to be very heavily weighted towards flush draws because given my image as someone who barrels um plays Mm -hmm. a lot of hands i my hunch especially given that this player is in position and that spr is not going to be super high 
after this player calls the bet, it'll be like three, you know, heading into the turn. Yeah. Is that he would flat his sets some percentage of the time. Oh, yeah. It's not a very draw-heavy board. I mean, there's a flush draw, but that's it. But yeah, I, I unblock all spades. I beat all spade draws. I lose to sets. I decided to just call here. I felt I would be able to play runouts pretty well, even though I'm out of position. And I didn't want to hedge so strongly on my read. Or not hedge, but I didn't want to like... I felt good about my read, but not good enough to rip, basically. So this to me seems like kind of like a calling as a compromise thing. I think if you're if that read is accurate, it's going to be more profitable to rip it versus, you know, bluff catching out of position without that much equity. You're going to have to fold most turns after putting another 100. Well, so no, I, I no, think no, this no, is... No. I'm not folding most turns. Yeah, then you're realizing your equity better against that range if your well, read expect- is correct and it makes it profitable to call turns than ripping it on the flop. Because if you're calling most turns, now you're you're just letting flush draws realize their equity, where against a player like this, I would actually expect him to fold a lot of his flush draws by only putting in 150 if you rip it, even though that's not going to be the correct play. But I think that happens some percent of the time at you know with kind of the tighter pros at the 2-5 level. So I just think a lot of really good things happen. You 100% realize your equity against a range that maybe has a lot more flush draws than not. And yeah, you don't end up like folding folding rivers to the, the worst hand that decided to triple barrel when you don't really have a read on what their triple frequencies are going to be. Yeah. So to be clear, like when I call here, and I, I don't disagree with you. I actually like shoving. I think that's probably the best play. But let me just be clear about my strategy here. I am not folding on a on a non-spade runout. Cool. You're just you're just calling down on non-spade runouts. Yeah, I'm just my hedge is like since I'm worried that he could have more sets than I expect, I would like to keep his draws in versus just like shut those out and pay off all the sets on the flop. But I think that might be flawed thinking, and I need to do some some math, basically, to determine for myself whether that's that's very flawed thinking. Because you're you're right. Like, I don't have a problem putting flush draws just like to an all-in decision right now. I'm yeah. just almost indifferent to whether they call or fold. I actually probably would prefer them fold because they have pair equity. And so I think yeah. I actually I do think going all in is probably the best decision. Really, I was thinking I was going to probably check shove a blank turn or just call oh. shove. Well, uh, why would you check shove a, a blank turn? To delay the all-in decision to the turn. Potentially get a flush route of fold on the turn and be able to fold when the spade comes in and I clearly don't have the equity to continue. Yeah. Again, I just think I, again, I haven't done the math either, but intuitively, I feel like if you do the math on, you know, how often you expect them to fold the flop based on an all-in sizing of X, and then how often they're going to fold and the equity you're letting them realize on the turn by just calling, I think the the flop is going to be like a much higher EV decision. I, I I might not disagree that calling is plus EV. I think there's a good chance that it is. I just don't think there's a chance it's not less than uh than shoving. Hmm. 
Yeah. I could see that. I could definitely see that. Well, I'm glad to have brought this hand on because I wasn't thinking of the flop as the most interesting interesting street, which it wasn't. But Well, what happens on the turn then? Don't leave us hanging. So the turn I call. And so we've got like yeah, like maybe four twenty five, four fifty behind and about about three sixty in the stacks. Uh so SPR of like one point three. And the turn, yeah, the turn comes a 10, bringing it back to our flush draw, which I don't know if that's very relevant, but uh, but yeah, the, the turn comes a 10, which I think, I think both of us would perceive that as like a much better card for me, and if he has a flush draw, which I think is the, his most likely holding, then like, it's going to be perceived as such a better card for me that like, I think he's probably just going to He's going to check back, back most yeah. of the time, Yeah. So, I considered shoving, but at this point, I'd really like to. He has so little equity that, if it's possible to get all in on the turn, that would be best. I think if you get to this point again, I think this just going through this reinforces shoving the flop. But I think if you get to the the, the turn this way, you have to be shoving. Again, it's just about being consistent with the reads, you know. If the range composition that made, well, no, I'm not calling checking. The... I'm not. I'm not checking. It's oh, just a question oh, okay. Of what the sizing. sizing? Yeah. Um, I considered shoving, and I think maybe shoving was best. But what I didn't like about shoving, which I think is probably not really a problem, and I should just shove. But what I didn't like about shoving is I felt like he would play perfectly against the shove. He would fold the flush draws and if I was ever wrong and he had a 10 he would call and if he had a boat he'd obviously call so you're going for like a small exploitative bet that you'd fold to a shove no because if yeah so then I like shoving better because if you're always paying off a set then you just want to leverage your fold equity best against the flush draws if you weren't always paying off a set it'd be a different story but if you're always calling off then you have to you should shove right not necessarily I was, so I bet small to induce. Oh, wow. Didn't even think of that against this player type, but yeah. Yeah. That's an option. And I don't know if I like it. Yeah, I would, I would expect this player to shove a flush draw sometimes, but I actually, I don't think he's shoving enough to, make, to justify this play. I think I prefer just shoving. That yeah, would seem most the, consistent the with the player type. Yeah. It's just... It bothers me that it's such a strong read. But at this point in the hand, after having not shoved the flop and denied the most equity, yeah, it's things are just starting to get awkward. And this turn card's very awkward because one of the nice things about... One of the nice things about flatting the flop is that when the turn sucks, I just get to fold... And when the turn is good, a lot of times we just I get to put it all in knowing that I'm a pretty big equity favorite. When this turn card specifically comes, then it gets weird. Because I, no, I have no implied odds. I just need to figure mm-hmm. out how I can sort of deny equity or at least get some value. And if possible, get stacks in since uh, given SPR, that's going to be the most profitable outcome 
for me, even if it's a little higher variance. So I bet 125 into, what did we say? It was like 125 into like 360. Yeah, so in picking a sizing when you're trying to induce is pretty game flow dependent relative, I think, to other, other spots. A lot of times when I'm picking a size to induce, I actually try to pick a, like a sizing that was recently used by someone else in like a weak situation. I find that often works well, or some players like have their own kind of blocks about what's a small bed and what's a medium-sized bed. And you know, You've only been playing with this guy for half an hour, so it's, I think, hard to get that level of sophistication in the read. But I think as a default sizing, I'm choosing, choosing close to 85 to 100 in the spot. Mm-hmm. I think that's reasonable. Um, that's very reasonable. Yeah, I think I, I'm not too worried about this bet being misconstrued. Like, well, not that I necessarily want him to think that hard about what I have, but I think this bet's going to be perceived very much as like a donk bet, like a small out of posi- like position leading into the person with initiative from the last street bet. My hope is that. He'll follow through on his training to attack those types of bets and just shove with the flush draw. But I'm not, you know, I think it's a little optimistic since I'm not the player profile who normally does that. And that's not who you're trained to attack. So he did end up calling. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so my plan is just like, Check call, call blank rivers. Any blank river. Yeah. We do not get a blank river. <laughs> <laughs> the river is the three of spades. So final board, ten, three, deuce, ten, three, with three spades. So we got two pair on the board. I hope you check folded. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess I know how you feel. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I felt like he just might fold a flush. You know, it's two pair on the board. I'm ripping a 10 on the turn. He flats, which makes me think that he's at least concerned that I have a 10. And it's just pretty gross. And I think there's enough in the stacks. He's not, he's not getting a. He's not getting. He's getting a good price, but it's still like it's still like three hundred dollars. Yeah, it just it just seems inconsistent, you know. Like, I well, I think he has a flush. Allowed... I think he has a flush. No, and there's I two pair on the board, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying what feels inconsistent to me is that this is a player type who's going to attack the weakness, the degree that allowed you know the flop and the turn play to be profitable, is also going to be like so scared when his flush hits and that you might have a full house. Well, enough of the time to fold, you know, when getting, um, like three to one. You, you definitely might be right. So, you know, when I'm on the, on the turn decision, like I'm optimistic that he's going to interpret the bet as weak and shove through. He did not like he, he tanked for a while, and he called. And so that, I think, is a justified inconsistency. It's like I'm incorporating new information. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you can't incorporate new information. I just, I didn't hear that. So 
I'm just working with the information that I have and it seems inconsistent across streets. But yeah, for sure, I think I wouldn't recommend this to most, but I think, you know, when you're at your level, I think being more thoughtful about incorporating new information uh, on later streets is part of, you know, being a really good poker player. But at the same time, I think it's also like it's really easy to, for most players, I don't think you're in this camp to just like justify, you know, different plays on later streets. I think that's fair. Obviously, the genesis of the play was basically feeling that if I check, I lose 100%. And I need the bet to work like a third of the time. And, you know, if I think this guy has mostly flushes and there's two pair on board and he's concerned I have a full house, does he fold one third of the time across like all possibilities for this person. I don't know. He did not fold this time. He tanked for a long time and called with a uh, Jack nine of spades. So yeah, it was a weird hand. Yeah. I think that after the long tank, I could understand the impetus for bringing the show on the podcast for that spot. Just in that if someone tanks really long, it seems reasonable that that suggests that after a really long tank, one third of the time or greater, they're actually going to fold there. What I would say is just that before you saw that information, based on what you've told me, and I wasn't there and you're privy to a lot more in the situation than I was, it seemed like the information wouldn't suggest that person would come close to folding 33% of the time or whatever the exact figure is. But also that kind of proves your read. Because they did tank, you know? So it's it's just one of these kind of, like, I think very close spots on the river that, like, might seem a lot less close, not having been there myself. Yeah, I mean, so the information, yeah, the information I had to go on heading to the river was that he had tanked on the turn. If he had, if he had just called the turn, that thinking, I don't think I would have pulled the trigger. Um, so he hustled you. No, I don't, I don't think he. <laughs> I don't think he hustled me because then he tanked on the river. You know, if he had hustled me, he would have just called. Uh, no, dude, he wanted to get you again. Fair. Did it work? <laughs> no, I don't think so. My hope was that he had put in significant thought about my range on the flop or on the turn, such that he decided that he should only call with his flush draw, and that given what he had thought about the range, that he would fold the river because it's really i think in his mind it's it's really hard for me to have a bluff there like he's i think against the field it's like not a good call and i understand why he would call against me and not the field i think that's reasonable i was gonna say but like yeah i was gonna I say i'm never pulling against you <laughs> he really has to think that i'm turning like uh turning an overpair into a, into a bluff there or that some Which fish called with ace-king on the flop and wanted to hit an ace. I don't know. <laughs> Anything's possible. <laughs> with, an overpair on, with an overpair on the flop, I would have definitely shoved through, which he does not know. Maybe I would yeah. call if, it, if I had like a spade, actually. I would have to think about that. But if I had red aces there, I would shove through just because my equity against a flush draw is... Well, actually, I don't know. No, actually, against I think I would call in that spot, exploitatively. Yeah, 
I would like I would shove with like I definitely shove with Red Jacks. Probably shove with Yeah, Red know, Jacks. I Jack, think Jacks with Jack, Jacks with a spade, but no, I think Ace is one of those hands where like it has so much equity and that, you know, their flush draw can hit a pair on the turn and then you're just like always getting the money in then and you let them realize some equity, but I think that's you know, when you actually have the much stronger equity with the pair, not just having the ace king high, that's when those I think calling becomes a lot more attractive. And again, it's not a play I recommend for everyone, but for someone like you that's going to, you know, read someone wall on the turn. Yeah, I can see that. Man, I need to study this board. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it feels kind of good to, like, bring in a hand that I didn't play well rather than just go through listener hands and stuff because I think that's a much easier perspective to, like, think clearly and make good decisions. So I appreciate the input. And, yeah. Have a good last couple of days in Jordan, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, great hand. A really good time discussing it.